0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of the Foundation of Nonviolent Alternatives, I welcome you all to our very first in-person program. I am delighted to see many familiar faces in the audience, as well as in our stellar panelists. I personally thank Ambassador Kaval for chairing this program. And our panelists, Professor Kondapalli, Mr. Dipanjandra Choudhury, Mr. Tenzin Lakshay, and Professor Rosa Liu. Our program this evening, China 2.0, under Chairman Xi, what to expect from China under Xi Jinping, and analysis into his third term as President is a very timely and a pertinent one. The PRC presents the most complex foreign policy challenge for India. The current posture from Beijing, underlined by Xi Jinping's leadership, conveys intent to exercise regional dominance and counter any perceived opposition and threat. How would Xi Jinping in power impact global affairs? Will Taiwan be illegally conquered and annexed? Will the world economy change and shift from China? How would it impact the escalating border crisis between India and China and their foreign relations? Will the Indo-Pacific become the centre of political tussle? What does it mean now to the Tibetans? Uyghurs, Southern Mongolian, Hong Kongers and even Chinese who continue to bear the brunt of the draconian policies implemented on them. There are some questions that our esteemed panelists may address. We shall begin with Professor Kondapalli as he has to leave this venue after delivering his address to chair another program in the IAC itself. I request the Chair to begin the proceedings now and wind the discussions down by 7.45 p.m. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Tandon. Uh, you asked all the right questions. I don't think there are any clear answers uh, yet. So, of course, from China's... Uh, <coughs> past conduct, not only vis-a-vis India, but also in its own region in the Western Pacific and internally, whether it's in Tibet or in uh, uh, Xinjiang, suggests that uh, with the kind of uh, power that has now been centralized uh, in him, uh, we will not see any change in the direction of his uh, Policies, on the contrary, uh, he'll become tougher and uh, more assertive, um, and will and will actually push the situation in our region and internationally in directions which uh, we may not want. Uh, we know what happened at the 20th Party Congress. Uh, power has now really been centralized. As never before, earlier on, if some factions of the Communist Party were accommodated within the (laughs) power structure, uh, that has now uh, been discarded as policy. Uh, The Standing Committee, uh, as everybody is saying, consists of his yes-men, who will do exactly what he wants. It was quite interesting when he visited uh, mouth, whatever it is, where the revolution began. All of them were wearing the same dress, some, some kind of <laughs> tunic and this and that. Uh, I think it was a question of uh, thinking alike internally and looking alike externally. I was a bit surprised, and here I like Khan to give his thinking on it. I was a bit surprised when I read the entire speech. It was pretty tedious reading it very repetitive, that this refrain that is right through the speech about the leadership of the party. I would have thought that in the last 72 years uh, of, of power, uh, the party being in power, that, that this question should no longer be on the mind of the leadership or the public. The party is all supreme. So why does he in every single power paragraph speak about leadership of the Communist uh, Party. Is it that uh, there are differences, there is a struggle, there is a need for him to mobilise the the members of the Congress who then represent, of course, uh, people from various parts of China to make sure that they (laughs) remain loyal to the party and he says this even to the PLA that they must accept the absolute leadership of the party, why does he have to say that again and again? He's been saying this for so many years now. Um, then there is this other thing about uh, a su- a vulnerability that China is not looked upon as a democracy, is uh, looked upon as an authoritarian state, a toxicity, and therefore he has to uh, uh, alter the debate. and And he says that in his speech about improving China's image and everything else that uh, stressing on this whole process of democracy, democracy, uh, which, uh, which uh, uh, he thinks is the broadest, most genuine, and most effective form of democracy. Uh, he talks about impartial judiciary, law-based governance, uh, which then suggests that there have been problems uh, which the public has suffered from when he talks about the ills that have uh, affected uh, China previously. More importantly, the manner in which he trashes predecessors. Uh, in fact, he says in his speech, the lack of clear understanding and effective actions by them slight towards weak, watered down party leadership and shocking cases of corruption, which made me think uh, that uh, maybe the unceremonious exit of uh, of Hu Jintao, was not accidental, not entirely because of uh, health reasons. Uh, there is a view that, uh, you know, this China, uh, young youngsters in China are becoming uh, lazy, fun-loving, hedonistic, uh, flat. What is the phrase? Flat back or something <laughs> like, <flat. laughs> like that. When he refers to that uh, uh, in, in in his speech, um, uh, which then suggests that he is going to tighten up uh, in, in the sociological in the uh, in the area very very strongly uh, in order to make sure that uh, uh, they imbibe and and behave. Uh, according to the values of uh, Chinese socialism with Chinese characteristics. Um, incidentally, he also talks about uh, during his predecessor's time the online discourse being rife with disorder. This is, the, this is what he says textually, which then again suggests that he is going to impose even more censorship. One thought that already they were controlling the internet fully. What more they can do? Siri Khan can. Uh, can, can, can tell us. Then there is the more positive agenda, uh, where he dishes out a pretty impressive uh, statistics about China's economic growth. In the last 10 years they have doubled their GDP, they have doubled their per capita uh, income uh, and of course what we know with regard to the biggest exporting country in the world. But there is a lot of stress on innovation. Uh, of uh, China becoming a technology, technological power. Uh, uh, in, this con- in this context, it is interesting that he talks about the 2035 targets, but he doesn't mention anything about the 2049 targets. So, is there any… Is there, should one read something into it? But then, of course, uh, he realistically accepts that there are a lot of headwinds. In fact, he says that in pretty strong vocabulary. He notes these anti-globalization trends, unilateralism, protectionism. Uh, he sees a lot of turbulence ahead and external attempts to suppress and contain China. And he uses this very modish vocabulary, which I've never understood what it is. Black Swan, maybe I've begun to understand, but Grey Rhino, I don't know what it means. <laughs> but he, he talks about that and he talks about high winds and choppy waters and dangerous storms, um, which then require a very strong party leadership and a fighting spirit uh, uh, by China. And yet he talks about new strategic opportunities. So I find a little contradiction there as to what are the strategic opportunities that anybody can have when there are storms raging around. When there are, then you seek shelter. You don't go out and expose yourself to more danger. Uh, Interestingly, on the BRI, there's just two lines in two separate paragraphs. Uh, That's it. Uh, He doesn't wax eloquent on BRI, uh, BRI. There is some reference to global development initiative and global security initiative, and of course uh, we are on the wrong side of history according to the Americans, but he says that China is on the right side of history. So (laughs) he obviously uh, uh, seeks—how should I say? I mean, his metrics about being right side of history seem to be uh, American. And finally. Uh, about the PLA and enhancing uh, the military strategic capabilities uh, of China win local wars. Now, Taiwan is not going to be a local war, it can actually uh, trigger a (laughs) world war of sorts. So, when he talks about local wars, clearly uh, he has uh, Ladakh in mind, uh, India in mind, and when they put uh, the visuals of uh, Galwan clash, onto the screen in the Great Hall of the People. And um, when Kifabao Pao or whatever his name is, is present in the audience, I think it's a, it's a very serious, well, it's a message that is being delivered uh, uh, to India. On Taiwan, uh, he says a lot about uh, uh, Taiwan, but assumes that uh, the Taiwanese love the Chinese, and finally they will accept them. Uh, but he, w- he says he won't promise uh, to uh, renounce uh, use on uh, use of force well this is by and large what i gleaned uh, from his speech and as everybody believes that this is going to be the template of chinese foreign policies uh, internal and external policies going ahead uh, i don't think it it uh, all amounts to a very uh, optimistic scenario so far as uh, India, the region and the world is concerned. So Sirika, up, over to you and I hope you can clarify some of these mysteries.
2: Uh, thank you Ambassador Sibal. Uh, good evening to you all. Namaskar. Um, the uh, October 16 to 22nd uh, Party Congress I would Like to see this as uh, a measure for internal balancing and external balancing. Um, Internal balancing, um, Xi Jinping trying to kind of uh, do a lot of sweeping of the domestic situation, uh, especially in terms of the uh, political factions. and hence, um, as Ambassador Sibal mentions, the leadership issue. Here, leadership basically means under Xi Jinping. Previously, the uh, under Tang Xiaoping and Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, there has been a decentralization of the leadership in many areas. For example, the special economic zones that were set up, uh, they planned to set up 4,000 of these. They were able to successfully set up 2,000-odd special economic zones. Uh, and uh, with these, the uh, the power has been decentralized to a large extent. Although they kept mentioning about the leadership, about uh, absolute leadership, etc., these remain mainly rhetorical. Uh, in terms of concrete uh, postures, specifically under Jiang Zemin, um, between 1989 and 2002, uh, when he ruled, Uh, The, uh, for example, just to give an example, uh, even private enterprises will have a party committee uh, and uh, uh, any firm that employs more than seven people should have a party committee and then they would uh, report it back to the central committee of the party. Um, So, for example, if there is a Chinese company in uh, Delhi, uh, uh, in Khan Market, for example, uh, a restaurant, Uh, employing more than seven people, it should have a party committee. Uh, What do they do is they don't propagate Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, uh, Tang Xiaoping theory, Chiang Zemin's three uh, three represents, Hu Jintao's harmonious world and scientific development and Xi Jinping thought, pretty long uh, process in their constitution. (laughs) Uh, They don't do that. What they do is uh, obviously for the strategic policy that uh, each of the party congresses and each of the uh, party congress constitutional amendments that have been made. Uh, For example, in the current constitution of the party, every party congress has uh, some amendment. Please do not confuse the party constitution with that of the state constitution. They had four state constitutions, PRC constitutions. Those are different from that of the party constitution. Every every five years, the party constitution uh, is amended in one form or the other. And in this party congress, uh, two specific uh, things are mentioned. One is the core of the leadership of Xi Jinping uh, and uh, Xi Jinping thought uh, these have to be abided by, uh, The uh, so this is specifically put up into the Constitution. In other words, even if you are jokingly cracking uh, something on Xi Jinping on the roads, you can be picked up uh, and uh, bumped off, uh, as it has happened to many uh, people within China on that front. So that is the power, and that is what the leadership actually meant. Uh, leadership for leadership under Xi Jinping. It's not about the other factions, uh, Communist Youth League, or uh, uh, even PLA as a faction, uh, People's Liberation Army, or that of uh, other factions uh, that keep popping up uh, in uh, China, time to time. Uh, So uh, the leadership here is the unified leadership. Uh, Again, unified leadership is Xi Jinping's faction's leadership. That is what the specific connotation of leadership means here. And uh, he was able to, uh, Xi Jinping was able to push through. And we saw that with uh, Hu Jintao's, uh, the uh, effort to evacuate him from the uh, conference room. And also yesterday, uh, Hu Haifeng, his son, was removed from one of the uh, chejiang provincial um, uh, level um, you know, position. So uh, that indicates the uh, not just the um, Communist Youth League, but those who are involved with the Communist Youth League, like, like uh, Hu Chintao, the leader of that faction before when he was the General Secretary, and n- not giving any positions to Li Kaqiang, Wang Yang, uh, and Hu Chunhua. Hu Chunhua, of course, sc- scrapes through with uh, the Central Committee membership, but not the Politburo or Politburo Standing Committee memberships. Uh, we hardly find uh, any of those, uh, although Communist Youth League is supposed to have about 18% of the uh, 96 million carders support base, uh, according to a rough estimate. Uh, so that indicates that there is actually uh, the leadership concentration issue has become the problem. Uh, since the reform program has been initiated. But we can also say that even during Mao Setung time, the leadership has been splintered. Uh, if you look at the Kao Kang Rao Shushu or Chang Kotao incident or Pangda Hui Mao Lushan conference or uh, any other, or during Cultural Revolution with Liu Shaoqi, Tang Xiaoping, uh, the problems that Mao had with all of them, so, um, to treat the Communist Party monolithic is problematic, but here what Xi Jinping is trying to do is kind of centralize the leadership. So, that is what uh, the internal balancing is also about, um, uh, to sweep the uh, whole place with, uh, uh, for example, Li Chiang had a difference of opinion with Xi Jinping on the street hawker economy. Uh, for example, what it basically means is small and medium enterprises-related uh, economic issues that uh, Li Chiang tried to, especially during the pandemic, uh, especially during the times when um, uh, there was a distress within the society uh, in these economic formations. So that has also led to a kind of decentralization in terms of the views. Uh, so that is where the absolute... Uh, uh, you know, uh, concentration is reflected. So internal balancing is through this unified, so-called unified leadership. Uh, it is through uh, various other measures within. Uh, so the first thing that uh, Xi Jinping does is to take the entire Politburo Standing Committee to Yan'an uh, in uh, North Shanxi Province. Um, And the last standing committee member, uh, seventh standing committee member, Li Xi, was one of the mayors of uh, Ya'an. So it is also kind of uh, promoting Li Xi, the the last member in the Politburo Standing Committee for this process. Uh, um, Yan is important because um, Mao Zedong uh, finally, after the... Uh, the Sunni Conference uh, in 1934 uh, during the Long March, uh, where he defeats Chang Kotao, uh, and uh, uh, the Revolutionary Military Commission, as it used to be called at that time, uh, became uh, Mao's uh, main uh, you know, arena, where he becomes the chairman. Uh, that position he retains till his death in 1976. So from 1934-35 to 1976, that is where you could see, and uh, Yan is important because the rectification campaign began in the early 1940s, uh, and it spread out to different areas, uh, and that is where Mao was able to exercise centralized leadership over the entire party. There were differences even then between um, Mao, Liu Shaoqi, and others, so By the visit, uh, soon after the party congress, by this visit, Xi Jinping is trying to again say that uh, uh, there is the uh, need for centralization of the party apparatus. Um, So this is one effort that we saw uh, within the political factions, within the political uh, system. Um, There is also uh, the... uh, sixth plenary session of the 19th Party Congress in November 2021, last year, uh, (coughs) which mentions about this centralization uh, debate uh, and also various others. Um, In 2018, March, uh, Xi Jinping introduced in the National People's Congress, their parliament, uh, two, three new um, uh, legislations, uh, which is one... uh, Any vice premier can be uh, dismissed by the president of the country or the general secretary of the party uh, based on XYZ reasons. They did not mention exactly what. uh, So this is one, uh, in addition to making president and vice president terms extended, uh, the effort to dismiss a vice premier. So in other words, they even thought of dismissing Wang Yang and Hu Chunhua, the vice premiers, Uh, at that point of time, uh, as a measure for centralization. So that is one. The second, uh, within the sixth plenary session, a new um, uh, law was introduced where uh, the Politburo (coughs) members should seek the permission of the General Secretary to raise any query or any subject for discussion. Uh, So which means that Xi Jinping has now the power to introduce or uh, disallow any query from any Politburo member. So thereby he also controls the agenda uh, within the uh, plenary session. So so this is important uh, for us to understand that the political process of centralization was happening uh, and various measures can be uh, mentioned as a part of that. The external balancing, as uh, Ambassador Sybil mentions, there are so many, uh, for example, in in terms of foreign policy related, uh, the mention of invasion by foreign forces, um, uh, the mention of blackmail by others, uh, (coughs) or containing or uh, depicting the international situation as very complex in nature. Uh, so these are also efforts to uh, kind of balancing the external domain. Uh, and here, here he chooses uh, Hong Kong first uh, and then Taiwan. Hong Kong uh, successfully resolved with the national security law implementation. Uh, and Taiwan, on that uh, issue, the uh, constitutional amendments to include uh, the uh, countering Taiwan independence forces, et cetera, et cetera. So... So external balancing is also clear from this perspective. Uh, so internal balancing, external balancing. Um, in, uh, in the uh, effort to occupy the center stage, as the 19th Party Congress uh, mentioned, So which basically uh, means that the Chinese assessment, the Party Congress uh, assessment, uh, and in general the uh, assessments by various Chinese, is U.S. is a declining power. Uh, and uh, uh, so they cite the examples of the 2003 Gulf War where Colin Powell was telling the uh, Security Council to give permission to bomb Iraq on the WMD-related issue. uh, is an indicator because the Security Council did not give permission for the U.S. to uh, launch this. So that is uh, seen as a loss of uh, power by the U.S. It is not able to really exert as the superpower uh, in across the global community on the second Gulf War, likewise on Afghanistan, likewise on uh, other issues where the, uh, the U.S. Uh, power is seen as declining. Uh, once Lee Kuan Yew, the former uh, Singaporean Prime Minister, warned the Chinese that if that is the assessment, you are actually making a lot of uh, 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 mistakes which the current foreign minister of uh, Singapore last week again mentions that uh, it is a, it is not a proper assessment to say US is in decline well one can say that Singapore is uh, is an ally of the US so probably it is taking that kind of a position but if you look at the ASEAN in in fact Singapore had taken a pro China position on the South China Sea gradually uh, uh, out of ten countries, in fact, nine countries are towards the Chinese uh, in terms of the South China Sea-related disputes. It's just about Vietnam, which has a, uh, uh, which has a negative uh, position on Chinese-related uh, uh, on the South China Sea. So if the overall <coughs> Chinese position is U.S. is in decline... Uh, So they see strategic opportunities to fill up that vacuum, and that is where the whole thrust of Xi Jinping's external balancing is also uh, to be seen. Um, uh, So that has to be uh, uh, refurbished uh, with um, uh, uh, own self-help measures uh, that China is uh, undertaking, uh, specifically in the light of the Trump administration tariff wars, which are still continuing, but most important also the ban on semiconductor chips uh, that were announced a month ago by the biden administration so uh, so the external balancing is also should be seen from that perspective and now also comes the uh, ukrainian war the uh, no limits partnership with russia uh, or other related matters which the chinese see, do see as an opportunity uh, in the in the current context so uh, the 2035 targets, uh, Ambassador Sibyl mentioned, is a self-help measure here. Um, when you club that with the 14th Five Year Plan uh, items, uh, there are some 11 items in the 14th Five Year Plan, which is which began last year, being implemented. Uh, that includes China becoming superpower in trade, uh, in uh, Renminbi internationalization. Uh, In digitalization, in high-tech manufacturing, in uh, culture, sports, uh, there are 11 items uh, of these and they would like to be the the superpower in this or leader or uh, predominant player in this. So that is the self-help measure uh, that we see. And as a part of the dual circulation (coughs) strategy and the increase in domestic consumption, so that is where China intends to... Uh, do the uh, internal balancing with that of the external balancing in the in the in the uh, global domains. Uh, so why why does then BRI uh, is in a subsumed position? Belt and Road, uh, as you know, the uh, both um, Chinese uh, problems with the BRI. The third summit meeting was an online meeting, uh, and it was attended by just about 25 foreign ministers. Lavrov was also there, but (coughs) Lavrov did not make a statement in that uh, third BRI meeting. Uh, His speech was read out by somebody else, uh, which means that even the Russians have some problem with the BRI these days, Belt and Road Initiative uh, projects. Um, In addition, of course, the BRI also had, as the uh, uh, Act Asia uh, report had suggested, 16, 17 countries falling into debt uh, and... uh, uh, Thank you. Uh, And uh, 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 there is also the external opposition like the Build Back Better World, uh, the north-south transport corridor by the Russians, Iranians, Indians. Uh, You have also the AAGC, Asia-Africa Growth Corridor. None of these may have really flowered, but there is at least a certain uh, opposition from these. In addition, of course, to the Indo-Pacific Quad and other formations that are emerging. So um, so BRI is kind of subsumed uh, at the moment because of these both internal problems that China is facing as well as the external uh, opposition that is coming up. And in fact, the Indian opposition has been much more uh, concentrated. Prime Minister Modi, for instance, goes to Qingdao for the SEO meeting, says about uh, the connectivity issues should not uh, disturb the sovereignty claims, uh, so on and so forth. So there is a uh, effort here. Uh, I want to touch on the uh, again the domestic uh, aspects quickly, and uh, here um, uh, the selection of Li Qiang uh, as the number two in the hierarchy is important to understand uh, because he uh, uh, he had uh, uh, worked on all the pet projects that Xi Jinping would would like to: rural poverty, uh, sociology, management, business management. Uh, and, uh, of course, bringing in Elon Musk for the Tesla project uh, and uh, a host of other things. But most important, he also enforced the COVID-19 protocol in Shanghai. Uh, for the past one, one and a half year, Shanghai almost has been shut down, uh, and which also means, of course, the economic decline from that point of view because Putung's special economic zone contributes substantially to the GDP of uh, the country. So, here, the uh, second person I would like to highlight is Wang Honing. He's very, um, uh, he survived uh, Chiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, now Xi Jinping as their script writer. But most important, and has implications for India as well, uh, his thesis was on neo authoritarianism in Futan University. And uh, after his visit to the United States, he criticized the way United States democracy functions. Uh, and uh, so the introduction of the uh, extreme conservative party uh, uh, leadership uh, has been pushed through through Wang Huning's uh, efforts. Uh, and I think Xi Jinping was very much influenced by Wang Huning's uh, project on that. Uh, the second, so, so which means uh, democracy uh, should not be permitted in any way because that would lead to more decentralization, uh, within China, so that is one uh, that the uh, the uh, Wang Huning suggestion is. The second important thing is, of course, the internet controls. Uh, here, the uh, decentralization process and the media and uh, civil society, etc., um, uh, is fed by the freedom in internet, uh, and that is where internet controls, internet security. Uh, in fact wang huning was one of the uh, one of the chairman of the comprehensively deepening reforms a new institution that xi jinping brought against the small leading group central small leading group which is like some of so, something like our empowered group of ministers before in during the upa government uh, so wang huning headed these uh, internet controls uh, so that is where we see substantial controls uh, placed in the internet um <clears throat> finally i would like to say xi jinping mentions in the work report about the uh, the core interests protecting the core interests remember in 2012 when he came uh, to power he mentioned core interests will not be sacrificed for developmental interests and within 2 years we had the chuma incident we had the Depsung incident uh 2013 and we had the Doklam incident, and then finally we had the uh, Galwan incident. So it is in line, and which means that uh, stressing on core interests would also mean the LSE is going to be, line of actual control between India and China is going to be uh, what it is, or even worse, uh, in the near future. So that is, and uh, as Ambassador Sibyl mentions, the, the presence of Chief Apa uh, who participated in Galwan, uh, and the videos that that were circulated across the country is a signalling uh, uh, about um, about the uh, um, the uh, the galvan related images. So reproducing of those images is important in the Chinese context. Um, uh, I would also say that the um, the um, um, uh, S&T innovation, as uh, Ambassador Sibyl mentioned. Uh, this is mainly in terms of uh, the internal balancing uh, against the US uh, in the light of the semiconductor industry, ba- uh, chips ban, uh, so on. But it also will have a- an indirect impact on India in the coming years as we keep chasing uh, chips from all across, uh, from TSMC, from Belgium, from uh, other other areas. This is an area also we need to... Uh, be aware of uh, that the competition is going to come up even in the uh, chip uh, industry uh, in the longer term, as the uh, the work report mentions on s innovation. Finally, uh, on COVID-19, um, because that has been mentioned in the work report and the dynamic zero COVID policy would mean continuing border controls, uh, which then also means all those 30,000 Indian students who are studying in China for the past two and a half years, they were not able to go back to Tianjin and Guangzhou uh, for their medical sciences. It means even though there is some relaxation for a few hundred uh, uh, Indian students after one year's visit, uh, this is an area I think we are going to see a um, problem uh, because uh, the medical sciences have to be actually uh, done through laboratory uh, physical presence rather than through online uh, classes and so on. Uh, also, finally, I would say Wang Yi's inclusion in the Politburo uh, and uh, uh, He Wai General He Weitong, because He Weitung uh served in Western Theater Command when the Doklam incident happened uh, and also was instrumental partly in the preparatory work for the Galwan incident. So as the second vice chairman of the Central Military <coughs> Commission, General He Weitung's presence there suggests we are going to have company for over a long period of time. Thank you for your attention.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Siddhikant. Um, I think you have to go, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you go. <laughs> I'm finished. sorry, sir. Uh, so, Dipanjan, y- your turn. You, g- you got 10 minutes. Yeah, I'll uh,
3: thank you, Mr. Sibble. uh Thank you, Mr. Tandon. Uh, <clears throat> I'm probably the least kind of. Uh, Experience in terms of China sitting here and trying to make some sense, but uh, taking a cue from Ambassador Sibal and Professor uh my uh, limited analysis so far is that that this uh, next five years is going to be uh, primarily regime protection, and probably we will see a China which, uh, like I mean, uh, I've been mean in. Uh, in the past, and, and probably different from Soviet Union, is a, a lot of focus will be on regime protection. You know, his entire focus it seems to be uh, surrounding and regime protection, and probably therefore this leadership, a continuous focus on leadership uh, comes. Um, I have change, noticed a change in their approach to Belt and Road in the last couple of years, particularly after the second summit, and uh, as the reservations about Belton Road has uh, grown. Uh, Uh, know uh, with India leading from the front and we definitely have a much different case than many countries in the world, you know, be it in Latin America or Europe in terms of the sovereignty issue. Uh, They have realized that, uh, I mean, the the Chinese leadership has realized that uh, the Belt and Road initiative in its current form will have a lot of reservations and opposition. And there have been reservations uh, from from countries where, uh, uh, which which uh, benefited uh, in term, well, regimes benefited from these initiatives in Africa, uh, in in uh, Southeast Asia. So I mean the reservations have come from uh, you know Western African states and <coughs> even Southern and Eastern African states where uh, uh, where the the regimes have probably benefited from some kind of deal between uh, the Chinese uh, when the Belt and Road initiatives were entered into and the change of guard in some of the countries or the debt that, that they found themselves into a debt and the Sri Lankan experience has also added to their reservations in it and in fact nearer home uh, we can see that uh, you know Nepal in particular uh, have, have a very uh, different approach uh, to China where they where they insist more on grants rather than uh, uh, loans because they are not in position to repay loans and they have made it very clear to the Chinese that they are interested now in loan in grants rather than loans. Uh, Bangladesh has also been uh, quite cautious in terms of accepting uh, uh, loans in uh, for projects where they think that you know these projects uh, uh, will will probably not lead to a bigger debt and they also keep the Indian sensitivities in mind Sri Lanka is a is completely a different case where where Rajapaksa was all, uh, was also only interested in the regime and the family in protecting their interests. Uh, so belt and road and and they 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 have they'll try to uh, they're trying to soften this reservation against the belt and road initiative by uh, coining this term global development initiatives and and he's realized um, uh, he means xi jinping here has realized that you know this will have uh, this will not have a smooth run and therefore they need to change the approach and uh, f- the reservations have also come from Europe and particularly Central European countries, where uh, we find that in in, uh, in the Baltics and, and other countries they're slowly, uh, you know, expressing reservations in terms of signing new projects and also, in fact, accepting trains. Uh, for example, you know, Poland uh, Poland was very very, uh, uh, you know, was uh, had um, kind of reservations in in uh, in terms of. Um, and in, in, in the trains which are coming to Poland with items from China, but Poland had very little to offer to China, and therefore the trains were returning empty. I mean, so so uh, if my memory serves right, they, they had that, that train via Poland has stopped uh, in the last, and in the, this is during the COVID period. Um in, in the coming five years, uh, in terms of the uh, in the foreign policy push and the economic push, I feel a lot of push would come in in Southeast Asia, South Asia, as well as Central Asia. Central Asia is one area where uh, the Chinese are um, pushing very hard. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the economic projects as well as uh, strategic influence, uh, mm, I understand the Russians are wary of it. Some of the Central Asians are also wary of it. And in a recent meeting in Astana. Uh, uh, in, uh, in the presence of Putin, I think uh, the message that uh, the Tajik President was trying to be delivered is that, you know, why is not uh, Moscow not doing enough in this region and a and lot, of, lot of diaspora has returned from Moscow and they have no jobs and therefore they are they're, they're also falling into a kind of a, of, a, of a trap or they can fall into a trap with the Chinese uh, if Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan in particular are in a, in a dead trap vis-à-vis the Chinese. Uh, from this Party Congress, uh, I did not um, uh, kind of have uh, view some observations and I did not find any clear roadmap uh, that was provided to deal with the present economic difficulties other than a vague statement of a self-purification of the Party. Uh, we would have noticed that the Chinese stocks plummeted after the new leadership took over, resulting in a rampant sell-off. Uh, this might be only a short term phenomena, but it indicates, according to me, the fear in the stock markets about the direction taken by the leadership. Uh, they would emphasize less dependency on imports and more on exports to take care of the US China decoupling, basically, to de risking and de leveraging their financial system. Uh, one major area which will be taken up will be internationalization of one and probably uh, focus more on the trade in national currencies, which India also is slowly focusing uh, beyond the traditional partners uh, with various countries and trade in national currencies. And I, and I, and I feel that um, uh, the Chinese would, would focus more and more on that and the Saudi Arabia has already decided to uh, do the oil trade in Yuan. Um, their their uh, ideal by 2050 would be to replace dollar by one uh, for international transactions, including for BRI. But I don't know how much that will be successful. Um, the absence of Li kaqiang and Li Jiangshu, in in my opinion, will will uh, will will lead to economics, which would mean uh, uh, replace. Uh, will have a very very strong uh, stamp from Xi Jinping. The tech industries will will. Uh, in China, will face closer scrutiny, and therefore there will be tightening of internet governance, as Dr. Kondapalli was mentioning. And more and more companies will be forced to store data locally and share with the Communist Party uh, as and when required. And the replacement of top bosses of the tech companies might might continue, and more Xi loyalists and supporters would 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 be in charge of such companies. Uh, China's heightened sense of threat is very evident in the discussions around the 20th Party Congress. The objective for the next five years is to increase China's international standing and influence and enable Xi, uh, China to play a greater role in global governance. The Global Development Initiative and the Global Security Initiative, as I was mentioning, will start to emerge among, uh, you know uh, the rhetoric regarding these initiatives. Uh, uh, the literal countries in Indian Ocean and the Pacific will be initial takers of these initiatives. And if the Chinese can have their uh, third aircraft carrier ready, I think we need to watch our back, in particularly in the Indian Ocean region. Um, Wang Yi still retains as as Ambassador uh, Sibal had mentioned and Professor Kinapoli a lot of clout, and I think immediately after the Party Congress, um, he extended support to the, to to Lavrov. Uh, in in a, in a statement, and and uh, while this party Congress did not, I, I was quite a bit surprised to see that there was no special mention of the Ukraine war or the special military operations uh, by Russia. But um, the, uh, immediately after that, the Wang extended support as as uh, mm, as no limits uh, partnership that uh, the that in China would stand by uh, by by Russia. Um, as Dr. Gowda was mentioning, I think we would uh, be in for a tough time, and we should prepare for a tough time. And this, it's more or less clear from their approach, and and it still baffles me that you know what would they gain in terms of uh, of of making India and punching back in terms of where they have other histori- other historical uh, in terms uh, you know rivalries to settle, and they are picking up this 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 fight with India, uh, where the economic footprints in India slowly. Uh, Slowly reducing, uh, the model that the Chinese had applied, particularly in certain Southeast Asian countries like Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, is is to push uh, you know the youths towards um, towards a, a model uh, where where um, human trafficking, flesh trade, small arms trade uh, were were rampant, and particularly in the in areas bordering China, like in northern Myanmar or areas bordering Myanmar, Thai border, and in Cambodia, so that that. That has uh, seen some kind of uh, you know pushback, uh, but they they are targeting these countries as vulnerable where they are also introducing the loan apps where trying to lure the the unemployed youth or to provide loans. That that model uh, also did not uh, is not being successful as India has called that bluff, and um, you know. With India, not uh, the trade increasing but not the Chinese investments, you know, I think that, they would, that the relation, the economic, the, uh, the overall strategic outlook vis-a-vis India is going to remain bleak not only for the next five years. I guess, you know, I don't foresee any kind of uh, uh, a positive atmospherics being uh, created unless Xi Jinping, before his visit next year for the G20 summit, wants to create some kind of positive atmospherics. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Uh uh, for bringing uh, <clears throat> into focus uh, some of uh, the areas that were not touched earlier. There has been a $6 trillion uh, pullout of uh, the Chinese stock market <laughs> because of uh, this centralization of, uh, of Xi Jinping. Uh, may I now request uh, Mr. Tenzin Lekshe, spokesperson, Central Tibetan Administration, uh, to say his piece. Thank you, Mr. Chair. You have you have uh, how many? Let's say 15 minutes. Okay, Thank you. Uh,
4: today I'm not representing CTA. I'm just uh, trying to look into China's politics and where it goes. And uh, as being an observer of China and being directly involved in the game, so let's see how China works out. So under Xi Jinping, now this is the third term which uh, everybody expects before the NPC, uh, that Xi Jinping will remain as the third, as we all uh, know about it. And, uh, but everybody looks at who will be his partners in the standing committee. Like uh, people mentioned about Tamina, Ho Chung-wa, whether they will get res- uh, responsibilities as uh, people, uh, China observers, uh, had uh, I think for more than five years, six years, spoke about and uh, predicted also. But somehow it was a quite surprised uh, when the name came out. And uh, when Xi Jinping read the report, he talks about party leadership, he talks about centralizations of power, he talks about the merit of the cutters. But uh, when we look at these standing committee members, uh, they were all uh, his pets, right? uh, they're all loyalists, uh, I presume they are not based on merit, but right? because somebody who don't have anything on the central leaderships uh, remain into the standing committee because of being loyal to Xi Jinping. So therefore, uh, in this uh, NPC, uh, when you look at the leadership, it's all about central leadership. As uh, Provost Controller rightly said, that it's about balancing internal and external <laughs> issues. But how far uh, China is going to balance also, this is another thing which we need to look on uh, with the resumptions of the leaderships. And one thing which is very interesting is uh, in the report, they talk a lot about uh, socialist thoughts uh, of Chinese characteristics. But right? they also talk about diplomacy of Chinese characteristics. Uh, I presume there are many about it. But in a way, when we look at Chinese uh, socialism, of Chinese characteristics and the thoughts of cha- socialism on Chinese characteristics, uh, it doesn't go with Deng Xiaoping's thoughts. It doesn't go with uh, uh, Jiang Zemin's three represents. It doesn't go with the uh, harmonious society also of Hu uh, 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 Jinda. But it only talks about uh, Jiang, uh, Ho Jindau, I would say, Xi uh thought. So this is one thing which is very particular about. Uh, if they want to talk about uh, socialist thoughts of Chinese characteristics in new era, this is only about Xi Jinping's thought, nothing else. Uh, and second thing is, in the future, uh, because like as we see that since they are loyalists, uh, being in power and it was not based on merit and with the expulsion of Hu Jindau, uh from the stage uh, it looks like uh, this uh, uh, the end of fractions in the central leadership. Somehow it creates a kind of a, uh, problems uh, in understanding China if the traditional uh, fraction systems in the Chinese leadership is gone with this new leadership. I think it creates a new factions, uh, which is not traditional in a way. Because uh, when you look at the leadership, the fifth generation leadership, it has to bring the sixth generation leadership, the seventh generation leadership in place. But somehow I think there are many aspirations within the Chinese leaders who aspire to be the leader. On top. But they, he curtailed the position and didn't let them be the leader. So there must be so much grievances within the leaders, even though there is a centralization of leadership, but how long they will carry forward uh, Xi Jinping's thoughts will be a, a big caution for China to look at. And then, with the clear indication that there is a loyalist now. Uh, I think there is a lack of check and balance. And uh, if Xi Jinping says that uh, the black is white, everybody might thought that this is white. So that means that uh, the, if his view was wrong in future, then it will be a very difficult position for China because there is no check and balance. Everybody being loyalists, they don't want to be critical of his view, and because of their position. So I think it will be a highway, or rather it's a wrong way in the future. So uh, this is another thing which we need to look at. And being the opaque in nature, the Chinese systems, we don't know exactly. Uh, some people used to say that it's a black box. But uh, many people, they said it's a Pandora box, <laughs> where uh, uh, we don't know exactly what is going to appear. In the future, and uh, now the issue is uh, in the report. Also, it talks about uh, China's aspiring leadership in the world, being a power. Uh, when you look at power dynamism, like uh, they always talk about multipolarity, but somehow they were the one who is aspires to be the only power in the world. So external balancing also it will be a difficult part now, because of how the Belt and Road Initiative is moving forward. And uh, they only look at their own interests rather than others' interest as uh, their objective. So it's, uh, it's failing right now. So it, it has its own implications in domestic politics. So there are many things which I think, uh, even though they project to have a balancing in the domestic as well as in the external. but it remains difficult for China in the long run. Somehow what we felt is uh, when they aspire to be the world leader, I think there's uh, one thing which is positive for Tibet. Because uh, we long for middle way and regional autonomy within the framework of Chinese constitution. And when they aspire to be the leader, it's not like Deng Xiaoping's time, Zheng Zemin's time, Hu Jintao's time, when they have this kind of de- Saying that, uh, hide your strength, bite your time. Uh, once, if you want to be the responsible, you have to be on the front. Be responsible. If you want to be a responsible citizen of the world, you have to be uh, within the international norms. You cannot be excluded from the international norms. You have to be. There is no other choice. So once they have to be within the norms, international norms. I think. They need to follow the rules. So, therefore, I think there's no way that China, I think, uh, in Xi Jinping's time, right, they cannot isolate themselves. They want to be on top. If they want to be on top, they have to look into those things. Now, uh, regarding Tibet, now, for example, zero-COVID policies. Right, uh, quite recently, in Lhasa, in, in Tibet, we, there was an outbreak, COVID outbreak. And uh, there were lots of uh, issues coming out, uh, problems, grievances, right? and we saw in social medias quite often over the recent past. Initially, China thought that uh, the stringent measures of zero COVID in a, a distant place like Tibet could be a, an easy job to do. But somehow it was not easy because how they managed the zero COVID policy was a total chaos, a total blunder, which made the deputy mayor of Lhasa uh, to make a statement, by apologizing to the public for uh, being uh, for not being able to resolve the issue. So therefore, I think zero covid policy uh, in all over China is a difficult t- is a difficult thing. Right. And at the same time, uh, China's dream, rejuvenation of China, all these things projecting for China to be in a uh, global politics. I think it has another uh, big issues because uh, consisting of what they are doing right now, because they are talking about socialist ideology of a new era. Right. And the whole world is talking about democratic values. And as uh, Professor Gondobali said, that they are no longer going on the democratic values, but whether they are more strict on their own values. So since they are going in the opposite direction, I think that you'll have a, huge challenges in the future. And regarding Tibet, again, uh, as uh, Professor Gondopoli said, you uh, need to look at one person, uh, Wang Hunang. So I think uh, he is also particularly uh, maybe interested with Tibet issue in the next five years, uh, replacing Wang Yang, uh, chairing the, the Tibet forum. So we we'll look at him, and since there's a censorship of internets, right, and uh, Tibet, in fact, when you look at uh, the sovereign states, which uh, the new book which came out on China, uh, it didn't mention about Tibet. Rather, we felt that uh they have China have experimented the surveillance state inside Tibet and uh there is there is an encompassing surveillance mechanism already built in Tibet. That's why penetrating inside Tibet is very difficult. Right uh people cannot go inside Tibet, you need to have a special entry permit. So uh information which flows out of Tibet is also very difficult. I- information going inside Tibet is also very difficult. It's all censored. So therefore, surveillance mechanism which they have built is already in place in Tibet, right? And it's been exercising in other parts of China, right? Uh, why it, the Tibet cannot come into place? Because like, nobody knows what's going on. That's a challenge, right? And then the second thing is, with the marginalization of Tibet, again, under Xi Jinping. Just quite recently, uh, we see the Chinese protesting in Lhasa Street uh, asking the government to let them go to their own home place because of the zero COVID policy. So we see that now there are millions of Chinese settling in Tibet. That is also a design which the China already made in place. So uh, uh, there is a projection that by 2025, 60, 60 million tourists might visit they projected uh, that they'll visit Tibet. So therefore, uh, under Xi Jinping, with all encompassing surveillance mechanism built in Tibet, uh, there is a tough time, uh, but our hopes are not, uh, we still remain hopeful, even though there's a, uh, it's, the hope is distant away, but we have to remain hopeful that uh, good things will happen. And since we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future, and only thing is that the change is the constant thing. So we believe that there'll be a positive change coming up in China, uh, which the international community or domestic issues or anything which compel China to move to the right direction. And so far under Xi Jinping, we, we f- fear that they are not going the right path. But right. uh, centralization is not the thing which need, they need to do. They need to decentralize. They need to give more freedom to the public or the people so that people can be the ruler. Well, people can be in the power where they can rule China. But unfortunately, it's not happening. So therefore, I conclude by saying that that uh, road for China uh, or for Xi Jinping is bumpy, uh, not a highway. So we'll see right, how he's going to manipulate and how he is going to win the heart of the
1: people. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, uh, uh, Mr. Lekshay. Uh, a few years ago, before uh, COVID, uh, I had gone to Dharamsala, and I had a long chat with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, I think at that time there was. This feeling that uh, given Xi Jinping's own background, the manner in which he suffered and the early indications of his thinking that he'll be reform-oriented and he might be more open towards Tibet. So um, I, for five-ten minutes gave totally the opposite view. Uh, and uh, since then I've been giving this view in many forums. I'm not unhappy that I've (laughs) been proved (laughs) right. So, Professor Liu, the floor is yours. We have uh, 20 minutes. Oh, wow, okay, thank you. And if you want to finish in 15 (coughs) minutes, time for questions and answers, that's
5: fine. Okay. (laughs) Um, Thank you, uh, Ambassador Sebo, and uh, especially the thanks go to um, uh, Ms. Rebong for inviting me here. I'm based in Pune, so I'm now uh, the head of the Department of Social Sciences at FLAME University in Pune. So uh, I'm happy to come back to Delhi because um, we stayed uh, at OP Jindo Global University for two years. So this is our eighth year staying in India. May, I'm, I, I may not the only Taiwanese who's, who uh, teach in India, but definitely I'm the one who stayed the longest. So I hope I can every day, every extra day that I stay that I stay here is making a record on the um, uh, the history of India and Taiwan. So I'm I'm hoping that um, well, I can use it as a metaphor uh, between the friendship for the friendship between India and Taiwan, the two very different democracies in the world. So um, I would like to share some of my um, observations here regarding the power reshuffle of um, the PBSC, the Politburo Standing Committee of after uh, the 20th Party's Congress of CCP or the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, just like my uh, the previous respected uh, panelists has uh, indicated, well, we can see that um, this uh, new PBSC actually reflects the personal will, the personal political will of Chairman Xi Jinping. So you can see that there is no other factions uh, existing now in uh, within the CCP, not only the Xi faction. The previous uh, Hu Jintao's or the Youth League faction has been, we can say, totally destroyed. You can see this dramatic scene appear on the Presidium uh, of the 20th Party's Congress that Hu Jintao was dragged off by um, one of the uh, Politburo members. Uh, personal guard. You can see that. And nobody dares to say anything. The Tuan Pai, uh, including Li Keqiang and Wang Yang, they don't dare to say anything. So you can see that this is actually a very um, outstanding scene in this political drama, this political theater. That's very important. This is how power is being demonstrated. So uh, this actually um, signifies a paradigm shift in the Chinese politics from the power sharing among different factions to Xi Jinping's total control. So who are these people? I think that's very interesting that if we can do some um, analysis of the composition of the new people. Of course, Xi Jinping is the head. uh, But in this new generation of a Politburo standing committee, we can see there are several characteristics. First, these are secretaries. Right. The secretaries, either they have worked with Xi Jinping in different provinces when he is the head of that province CCP committee or they are playing the role as the secretaries. So secretaries are here to help, to assist, to execute the order from Xi Jinping. So they are not the policymakers. They are not representing different factions or their interest, uh, which is you know, usually done in the collective rule in the history of ccp so there is no collective rules anymore and secondly these people are from the cultural revolution generation so they are daring to struggle Uh, um, if we want to quote uh, the original language from xi jinping this is actually xi jinping's expectation to uh, the younger generation of chinese politicians dare to struggle right struggle can mean the objectives can be can mean well not now they don't have the classic enemies anymore, right? But um, uh, they they still have the U.S. is one thing, all right. The other one is the uh, the the enemy within the party, all right. So they are to struggle to deal with the the difficult questions. And people will say, well, there are different observations from different batch of scholars, either in Taiwan, China, or overseas, the China watchers, regarding whether this is like a com- combatant, a poly bureau that focus more on the politics, or they, 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 they are still trying to do something. I will say that, well, we have to notice uh, the backgrounds of the new people being selected into the PBSC. Uh, The first one is uh, Li Qiang. Li Qiang is going to be uh, the premier of China, who is number two in the PBSC. He served as the secretary of the CCP Shanghai Committee. So um, Li Qiang is from Shanghai, and uh, Cai Qi another one who is going to be the head of the secretary of the CCP he serves as the beijing uh CCP beijing committee so he's like what they call yi ba the, the the first one at at the helm or right, at the local committee so shanghai beijing one is the economic capital the other is the political capital and the last one Li Xi, serves as the CCP guangdong province committee guangdong is the biggest um uh economy within People's Republic of China. The, politi- the, the economic scale is more than Russia. right? The, the, the economic production of Guangdong one year is more than what Russia can produce for one year. So these are very economically important places. So this is very clear that Xi Jinping wants to, if he wants to remain political stability that he has been focusing upon, economic performance is still very important okay so he is when he is selecting people i think he he had to consider you know multiple aspect one is the political one so these are the cultural evolution generation who dare to struggle so they are politically (coughs) qualified all right but secondly economically they well, maybe they are not the best. A lot of people like say like to say that, well, they are inexperienced. For example, usually you have to serve as a vice premier be- before you become the premier. And Li Qiang is not. But that's not important, right? Because, um, well, he served as um, the head of the uh, economic, the biggest economic city in, in, um, in China. So that's enough. And the key point is here. It, the key point that I want to share here is that, Xi Jinping is the head. So these are just the secretaries. So they're here to help him, not, not here to share power with him. And uh, another characteristic that we can see is that there is no um, clear political successor that we will see from this PBSC. Usually, if they are trying to develop or to put the next political successor, they will put him into the central committee. All right. But uh, we don't see anyone here. But an interesting figure that we have to focus on is Ding Xuexiang. Ding Xuexiang is uh, Xi Jinping's secretary, one of his secretaries. And he is going to to become uh, the one who is, uh, uh, well, people are guessing what he's going to be. He might be the vice premier. And uh, he's the youngest among all. All right, so he's just sixty, six zero. <coughs> so after five years, he's sixty-five. So it's still he 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 doesn't have to be kicked out because of the age limit. So he can switch the roles with Xi Jinping, and he is the loyalist, the loyalist, the loyalist among the loyalists who can actually uh, execute Xi Jinping's will and political plans. And I I guess well, this is a bold guess that. If Xi Jinping wants to use this Putin Medvedev model in the like what they do in Russia, Ding Xuexiang will be the one that he will be trusting the most. So he and Ding Xuexiang can switch roles, Alright? Ding Xuexiang can help him, and maybe he can be uh, either the Premier or uh, the Party Secretary. But that's still too. It's a long call, all right. And. Um, what Xi Jinping has created for himself is that, in the first place, by putting all his people in the Politburo Standing Committee, he wants to ensure the political security that he has been, you know, view as the first priority in his political career. But by doing so, actually, he creates a dilemma for the political security among his among his people because, well. There's a long tradition of collective rule among the party within the party within the CCP well there's one there's one major benefit of doing that well we share the power but we share the responsibility as well. so if something goes wrong, it's our responsibility, not yours but now Xi Jinping just put this fuse away, and everything just goes to him. everything that he has done wrong will be his fault okay so now the other factions or the remnants of other factions are looking for this as the opportunity to attack him. All right? So COVID is one thing, Taiwan may be another, or other diplomatic, everything in the diplomatic front can be used, or economic front can be used by the enemies or the rivals within the party, the remnants, as a momentum to mobilize politically. So this is something that we have to to look at. So um, political security is something that Xi Jinping put as first priority. So if now he is facing, now the situation is new and he might create more potential enemies standing on the opposite side of him. So what he is going to do if we are following the logic of international uh, politics, well, one easy way for him to Divert this kind of political pressure from inside is to turn it from to the outside. So diversionary conflict or war is something that he might be used. And uh, if you remember, Xi Jinping has been very <coughs> bold when it comes to challenging um, the U.S. Um, you know standing rule in the world. He has talked about that before when he was the vice um, chairman um, of uh, the People's Republic of China, like. Um, I remember it was like the year around 2012. He said um, there are a lot of foreigners who don't know what to do. They would like to, you know, instruct us to do this and that. They, I, I don't know why they are doing that. They should care about their own business. So, well, of course, Xi Jinping is. Well, a lot of people like to say that he is close to the U.S. because he has some U.S. experience by staying in Iowa for a long time, right? But still, I think he will be the one who is there well, to struggle against the US. So what, what we can see from the following five years is that I think first we will see more and more event, uh, the tension between US and China when, PL, when, when the PRC and the CCP under Xi Jinping try to test and pose challenge to the US on multiple fronts. We will see that, that Beijing is be, trying to approach the diplomatic allies of the U.S. in different regions, including the ones in their backyard. Nicaragua is some, some country that we have seen to openly reject the U.S. offers right, and try to turn to Beijing's BRI. And secondly, we will see the rise and the strengthening of the author, authoritar, authoritarian international order. This is a new term being used by um, especially some western scholars to replace the so-called liberal international order the u.s has established after world war ii and the third thing is about the future of a bail and roll initiative a lot of people are guessing about the the fate of the bri well some have pessimistic views well from the chinese perspective that because of uh, they are trying to focus more on themselves, so we will see a shrinkage of a BRI. But I think we will see an expansion of BRI because China, when China is competing with the U.S., this is the place. This is the best place that they can set up a new example and open up a new front. China needs new market. China needs more internal internationalized test or ex- you know the the experiments to different countries about their strategies right and China need to get more diplomatic allies or at least those potential supporters other than countries like Pakistan countries like Zimbabwe and all these small but very authoritarian countries that have no friends just like China they are trying to get more from South Asia and Southeast Asia so we will see expansion of um, BRI and the uh, final two examples I would like to share is that the first one is regarding Taiwan the second one is regarding India for Taiwan um, a lot of people are speculating about war even when I went back to Taiwan in early October to participate in one of the most important geopolitical forum in Taiwan uh, I was approached by a, a core uh, scholar slash policymaker. He said that, um, well, now he thinks it's time for Taiwan to prepare for like um, 50 lakhs. It should be, yeah, uh, lux. no, uh, 500 lakhs of bulletproof vest for the Taiwanese nationals. Everyone should have two bulletproof vests. in in case that war will be taking place in the coming few years. And uh, a lot of um, scholars in Taiwan all speculate that the most likely timing for Taiwan to see a war is from the year of 2024 (coughs) to 2027. Because 2027 is the 100-year anniversary of the PLA. and 2024, two things will be happening. One is the new Taiwanese presidential election. If the pro-Taiwan independence party wins, that we will see more tension. And during, and, and also the US we will see a power uh, transformation in the US. So this actually add a lot of um, uncertainties for Taiwan. But for me, I will say that um, for the future, I, well, war is a rare event. But uh, we will see more tensions. Xi Jinping and POA will be more willing to use war to serve the role to force Taiwan to accept the idea of reunification. That being said, we may not see the real war or the large-scale you know, embarking um, military operations that POA will actually occupy Taiwan. But we will see that they try to use some scary military operations. For example, by occupying some of the islands uh, under control of the Republic of China, which is Taiwan's official name, and use that to force Taiwan to to accept reunification. This is something that we will see. And traditionally, um, P.O.A. I mean uh, P.R.C. Uh, C.C.P. has been adopting. Um, the united front tactics towards taiwan uh it's like a two-hand strategy so on the one on one way they are trying to provide some benefit for the taiwanese nationals the taiwanese companies the collaborators in taiwan those who benefit from doing business with taiwan they are trying to provide some benefit to these people and ask these people to tell your government unification actually is good for you and on the other hand they will be using military forces to to force the Taiwanese people. So it's like if you do, if you don't accept the carrots, you will have the <coughs> stick. Uh previously they they love to offer more carrots. But I think for the following years to come we will see more sticks because now they are equipped with new weapons, the gray tactics with the help of internet and all the other um social media portals that they can infiltrate into the taiwanese society in an easier way so that's that's a thing that i will say and and the last thing uh, is about india um i think it's more likely that we will see events like uh, what we see two years before in Govan valley because india is the weakest link in the indo-pacific strategy so there are there have been great incentives for the POA and the CCP and the PRC to challenge the weakest link, which is India. If you follow the news before, when we have Malabar exercise near Japan, the and the POA the Navy's ships, they don't follow the, the U.S. Navy. They don't follow the, uh, the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force. They follow the Indian Navy ship right after. So they are trying to create... Um, uh, they are trying to drive a wedge between India and the rest of the Indo-Pacific semi or pseudo allies. So I think this is uh, something that we have to pay attention because China will be testing India's resolution to stay in the Indo-Pacific strategy or the Quad, right? So um, Jishanker Ji has been talking about that we should occupy more mind space of China. But we need a strategy. How to, well, the Chinese are, we are are actually, I I think, well, what I've been observing in the Indian politics is that we are so used to democracy. We are so used to parliamentary democracy. So we are very good at making friends or, you know, building up different coalitions in the multilateral institutions, right? And this is what we like to do. But for Chinese, they don't care about this. They only believe in power. So what we see uh, from the PLA regarding what they do for along the LAC or the line of actual control is that they just build up everything, get everything ready. They just build different, you know, uh, they, they, they just renovate their airfields. They just build more barracks which has some heating devices that can help them to resist the long winter along the LAC. They got everything ready and say, well, now it's time for you to talk, right? Now we should talk. But if, well, they are creating, Mao Zedong like to say to zhao shi. Zhao shi means to create a favorable situation for us, for the Chinese. So they are creating the whole situation, favorable situations. And now they turn to Indian and say, now let's talk. We have to see this. We have to see this. I think that's very important. And Xi Jinping will be doing that in the following five years. And this is some two cents that I w- would like to share. Thank you very much.
1: Well, we have uh, 15 minutes of Q&A. So who would you like to ask a question? Please uh, identify yourself. And. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, very nice talk. Go in. I would like to ask uh, Professor Roger that uh, uh, we are talking of uh, China and India. They are sort of a, a, a non-written policy that India is a uh, their weak link or probably it is going to pose a lot of difficulty. So, they are extending talks and untalks and all. But what do the normal Chinese think about the whole thing? Have the, uh, the, the main uh, uh, party has uh, uh, created a uh, congenial atmosphere for the Chinese people to think that there should be tension with India? Or is it the Politburo or is the Xi, Jinping, Xi, Xi Jinping's main idea? And uh, he may have opposition on this, as far as confrontation in the dark in that area. Thank you.
5: So you want me to answer? Uh, thank you, sir, for, for your question. Uh, Kolosovitz has said in the first chapter of his on war that war actually has different phases. <coughs> For the policymakers, it's like a rational event. It's like a, well, it's it's like the uh, the continuation of policy, right? This is the famous quote. For the one who is fighting on the battlefield, the professional soldiers, it's a a mixture of planning and probability so it's a little bit like you're going to a casino and you try to win some money and for the people it's purely passion right so um for xi jinping actually he used india as a diplomatic toolbox when he has trouble he may go back to the toolbox and give it a nudge or something right but for the ordinary people i think that's very mixed because i have seen different chinese uh, people Um, They they have different takes on the Indian um, uh, population or the country. But uh, generally speaking, um, I don't think there are a lot of Chinese civilians who really understand the contemporary India. India, in the Chinese imagination, is, you know, when, when you ask the ordinary Chinese people about India, they will tell you the Buddhism is from India. Xuanzang went to India and take the important Buddhist scriptures and back for translation. And this is the beginning of the, uh, sinization s- s- of the Buddhism, right? Other than that, for modern me, for the modern India, what they can think of is the Bollywood movies, the, the dance and all this. And I have yoga. yoga. Yes. Yoga. Yeah. Yoga. Um, and, I have hosted a group of um, youngsters from Tsinghua University of China uh, between uh, 2016 and 2017. Uh, we took them to uh, the United Service Institute in New Delhi, and they actually have some debate with uh, the older, the, the old retired generals of the Indian forces, and the Chinese try to challenge. The, the younger generation tried to challenge the definition of democracy. Well, one, one student, as I remember, she said very, in a very bold way, like, why are you so proud of your democracy? We, when we pass, when we um, depart from Jindo University to here with so many people, you know, begging on the street, if your democracy system is so good, why it cannot solve these issues? <coughs> we should focus on welfare, right? And this is what the ordinary Chinese people think about when they think about you know the democracy in India, especially for now, but um on the other hand, I can see that um some especially brand new chinese uh teenagers or the college students they can be sympathetic and em- empathetic about um you know the common problems that India and China has been sharing uh for example you know environmental governance issue is one thing. The air quality, the, the polluted air is something. They they see a lot of similarities between India and China for now. For example, one of the young students when we visited one of the uh, model villages near Gurgaon, they, they find that there there's a buffalo, you know, being raised in the in the yard of of the Bangalore. And he said, Well, this is what happened in the northeast part of China in my granny's house. So they put the the buffaloes and raised them as well. So they see the you know the familiarity and and, and some connections. So I would say that this image actually is very mixed. So it depends on how the leadership is going to guide, you know, guide the two countries to know each other. But for now, I would say that there is a lack in international politics there's a lack of common interest between Beijing and New Delhi. That's why Jai Shankarji like to say that the two countries have to respect each other's sensitivity. Well, well, we and China should build mutual mutual sensitivities, mutual respect, and mutual interest. So he mentioned sensitivities first. It's like a three-stage thing. So now we have sensitivities only. We have to overcome this and then move to respect and to, finally, mutual interest. So there is a lack of mutual interest between China and India for now. Thank you.
0: Uh,
1: Any other question?
3: Hi, sir. My name is Divyang. Uh, My question is to uh, Mr. Tenzin Lecce. Uh, Sir, you commented on uh, uh, the situation in Tibet, uh, one of the things I would like to ask is uh, from the 20th Party Congress, uh, what future direction uh, in CPC's policy towards uh, the Tibetan Autonomous Region becomes visible to you? And the second one about the Lhasa, uh, the lockdown, were uh, prior in, – in 2020 when uh, COVID outbreak had happened, were the lockdown not as harsh in Lhasa? And this time when it was harsh uh, or it was, uh, a lot of reports came out about suicides and a lot of suffering, was this particularly o- only in Lhasa and was it harsher in these ethnic minority areas compared to other parts of China?
1: Is so there any other question? We can take a couple more. Yeah.
2: Hello. So it's around anyone can answer. Like I think this was something that no one talked about here about the the nuclear situation like maybe no one would go for that but as you see like no one was expecting russia to invade ukraine like this so is there a possible nuclear threat which xi jinping securing this unprecedented third term
1: any other question
3: Hello, uh, I would like to uh, ask Professor Leonia, uh, do you ever foresee a situation where China can coerce
4: Taiwan into submission without actually going into war? Okay. Thank you.
0: Uh,
4: thank you. Uh, we feared that because, like as Ambassador uh, Siebel has mentioned, when uh, in 2012. When she became the General Secretary and the President, uh, we were hopeful of many things that something good would happen to Tibet, not just with Tibet, with China, with Uyghurs, with Southern Mongolians. Uh, we tried to compare him with his father right, and his mother. So we tried to build up kind of a positive image, but somehow it didn't work out. Over the last ten, ten years, uh, it being more repressive when you look at Tibet, right uh, whatever happens in, uh, in, in so-called Xinjiang, right uh, it was already experimented in Tibet, as I said before, the encompassing uh, surveillance states are being built in Tibet, and now we have reports coming out by saying that there was a massive DNA collections inside Tibet. Right. And uh, one thing is that China is obsessed about Tibet. But somehow now that there are new things coming out because like, they try to wipe out Tibet. Right. They want to call Tibet as Shizang, just like East Turkestan, East Turkestan to Shizang, uh, Xinjiang. Well, Xinjiang became quite prominent in international communities. Nobody talks about, right well, is Turkestan. So they want to indoctrinate the same thing by saying that they tried it a long time back. It didn't, it didn't work out well. Now over the recent past, now they tried to change Tibet into Shizang in a more rigorous manner. So they want to look at how they want to change Tibet into their game. Uh, this is one thing. And the second thing is you need to also look at the settlers because I was shocked when we see the footage of Chinese settlers come on, coming in the street, begging for the Chinese government to let them go to their own hometown. We never imagined that there were a huge number. But somehow we know that by the numbers which were given in uh, Xinhua news channels or so, uh, every, every year, they project how many tourism uh, tourists visit Tibet, right? And huge. They were all settled. There used to be a floating pe- populations, but now there is a hananization going on in Tibet, right? And there is even at the right time when they were kindergarten, right? Kids, even in the crush, the the students were taught not in Tibetan but in Chinese, and we were being also informed that the student, the colonial boarding schools are placed, where the kids are not allowed to go to their home for three years, they were strictly there, retained there in the school, where they were taught in the Chinese. So, even though there is a bilingual policy, but somehow, on real terms, only the Mandarin's are being used. So, therefore, uh, the futures are bleak under Xi Jinping, but... As I said before, the hopes are there, right? We have to retain hope. One thing is very interesting because like when Xi Jinping came into power, we were hopeful, but there were fractions in place. So even if he is interested on Tibet issues, maybe because, maybe because of the fractions, it, the Tibet issue may not have come. So now we have to see, while he is in the absolute power, whether he really want to make a legacy by resolving the Southern Tibetan conflict. Now it's easy for him to do. It was not easy in the past because there were fractions in, in the existence right, system. Now since he's within his own peers, within his own prodigies, so it will be much easier for them. So therefore I uh, felt that though roads are bumpy, as I said, but there's a glimmer of hope. We have to remain hopeful.
1: Thank you. So we almost run out of time, but you have two questions to okay. answer. Hmm.
5: Uh, nuclear, right? Well, actually, they have done that before. The POA, CMC, uh, the head, Liu Huaqiu, when he had a um, uh, a meeting with um, the U.S., his U.S. counterpart after post-1996, the third Taiwan Strait crisis, he said, to the, his US counterpart. Are you willing to sacrifice Thai, uh, Los Angeles over Taiwan? So they used that before. But in the real war, it's very hard to tell. Even Putin is now lip service only. So we don't know whether, well, only we see the nuclear weapon being used again, we can make sure that, oh, now it's come. Because people have been talking about nuclear taboo for decades. So, yeah. And so you said, Without coercion or with coercion. Without, Without. okay, carrots um, and sticks, right? I, I wrote an article for um, a China Report. I said more than carrots and sticks. Now they have two other strategies. <coughs> One is needles. The other is networks. <laughs> networks. They're trying to build up a network of what what they call the local collaborators within the Taiwanese society. And needles. They use the gray tactics. So well it doesn't have to be military but they can just attack the infra infras of taiwan or you know they can show you what they can do during the time of war so if this is not coercion well i think there are a lot of things that they can use in their toolbox and well one of one important variable is the taiwanese willingness to resist and i'm not very confident about this because there are a lot of um, you know house owners Reach people in Taiwan, they will be the first to tell the government to stop challenging China and become part of China because they, they want to protect their pro- properties. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much. It was a very interesting uh, discussion. Uh, it ended on a rather uh, discouraging note where uh, Professor Liu thinks that uh, the Taiwanese will not resist. And the rich Chinese uh, will want to protect their interests and accept uh, uh, reunification with China. Um, of course, you know better. I mean, I I visited your country, uh, but I can't say that I am fully familiar with uh, <coughs> the uh, thinking in Taiwan and the various.
0: Uh,
1: uh, uh, how should I say? views that exist about reunification. <coughs> uh, my only thought was that uh, Taiwan is such a successful country. Uh, you have a um, standard of living which is higher than that of China. Um, you've never been part of China uh, is it, uh, ever since the Qing dynasty handed over <coughs> Taiwan to Japan. Uh, it's, it's the Americans who committed mistakes terribly all over, who after the Japanese defeat handed over Taiwan uh, to Chiang mm. kai Uh So when the Chinese say that uh, Taiwan is a part of China, this and that and that, it is less than half true. But leave that aside. Since then Ch- Taiwan has developed a personality of its own, economy of its own. Uh, it has strong uh, ties with the United States of America. The Americans keep saying that uh, uh, their uh, defense commitment to China is uh, to Taiwan is firm. Uh, naturally, they don't want a war, but uh, they are sending more than repeated signals that they will not uh, stand by if there is use of force uh, to uh, <clears throat> unify uh, Taiwan with the with China. Uh, recently, they have. Um, The Chinese see it as provocations, some others may see it as the right thing to do, (laughs) whether Pelosi went or US congressional delegations went or the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the United States went. Uh, And, uh, you know, after they tried uh, to, uh, uh, how should I say, uh, demoralise Taiwan with all the military uh, reaction after, after Pelosi's visit, uh, the, the, the uh, Americans sent in their, their naval ships in the Taiwan Straits, uh, which which they normally don't do. But this was to tell them that we are, we are not going to allow you to cow down uh, Taiwan. Um, then there is the semiconductor uh, industry, which is very vital, which China wants to have access to. Taiwan dominates that sector. Uh, but more importantly, uh, the entire strategy of the United States of America that block China as far as possible uh, by this uh, first island chain and let them not penetrate that. And if Taiwan becomes part of China, then the whole game is over. Then they have free access. Now they are building up this huge, huge Navy and aircraft carriers, even the third one, but sitting in South China Sea, they are sitting ducks. So they have to get out. Uh, across the first island chain. And that's why I have been saying that if America is going to uh, actually uh, lose its status as the global power, the challenge is not uh, Russia or the transatlantic area, the challenge is here. And it's in the Western Pacific, the future of America as the global power will be decided. So whether you're hopeful or not, I am very hopeful you will resist. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) So I think we can call it a day. Thank 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 you.